And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I fear neither God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, we come before you. We come to hear your word today and we confess Holy Father, that this is indeed the way that we grow. We hear your word and we grow thereby. And so we ask now that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that he would search deep within us, that he would see if there be any wicked way within us, and that he would lead us by the word in the way everlasting. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we are looking at the, uh, the parable of the persistent widow, or the parable of the unrighteous judge, as it has been called. And as I approach the topic of prayer today, I'm very aware that there's a region of life uh, in the faith here that is so vast that my explorations around the coastline with my little ship can only give you the crudest of maps. Uh, today, and I'm also aware that here's a topic, uh, the importance of which is impossible for me to overstate. I simply cannot overstate the significance of prayer. The great Anglican pastor and poet George Herbert called prayer the soul's blood. He called it the gladness of the very best of men. He called prayer the church's banquet and understanding prayer's terrible power. He called it reversed thunder. He called prayer the spear that pierces the side of Christ, piercing deep into the very heart of God. In fact, if you study the history, the history of the church to any great degree, you'll know that there are always varying degrees of saintliness in the lives of God's people. There are always varying degrees of godliness, and without exception, those who burn brighter and those who are almost giant-like in their strides of faith in this world are those who cherish and value and who practice prayer the most. Prayer to them is not just one religious act among many. Prayer is the act. It is the thing. Prayer for these people is what life is all about. In Herbert's words again, prayer is the soul in paraphrase. Prayer sums up 
who we are and most clearly expresses who we are. It's the creature communicating with its creator. The Puritan uh, Thomas Goodwin put it this way. He said, no less than this, prayer is the most precious acting of the soul. There's nothing on this green earth that you can do that is more profound, he says. That is, there's nothing that you can do that is more weighty. There's nothing that you can do in this life that's more effective. There's nothing in this life that you can do that's more rewarding than to pray. In short, there is no better use of your time in this life than to pray. And our text addresses something that none of us could ignore today without great loss or without significant diminishment of our souls. To hear the Lord's word today to us as a church and not to respond is to build our houses on the sand. And what Jesus says to each of us today in this parable is that men and women ought always to pray. Not sometimes, not periodically, but it's the Greek word here, pantate, always. Now, if this were the only moment in Scripture where we hear this daunting challenge, we might with greater finesse explain it away. Well, if we explore the Greek here, <laughs> what Jesus means isn't always. But Jesus doesn't speak this in isolation. His apostles pick it up and they repeat his injunction. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.16 tells us there are three things that we ought always to be doing. Rejoice always, pray always, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And of course, we have what he says in Ephesians 6.18. Paul sums up all of the spiritual graces, all of the things that we ought to be doing in the warfare of this life. He sums it up by urging believers to pray. And he says, praying when? Praying at all times. With all prayer and supplication to the end, that we might keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. Pray at all times, with all prayer and supplication. Pray with all perseverance. Pray for all the saints. There's a lot of alls in the Bible for us to go by. And the expectation, inasmuch as prayer is concerned, seems very high for the disciple of Jesus. And the progress of the kingdom of God seems to be inextricably tied to your prayers. The progress of the kingdom of God seems tied to how you spend your time in prayer. Paul writes to the church at Colossae. He says, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Why? Why, Paul? So that God may open a door for the word. So that I might proclaim the mystery of Christ. You see, Paul knows that the progress of the gospel is dependent upon the prayers of the people of God. And so the old Methodist preacher, Ian e. Bounds, is so bold to write that the gospel moves with slow and timid pace when the saints are not at their prayers early and late and long.
Prayer is the battlefield of the church. Prayer is the church's citadel. Prayer is the great scene of our heroic and our unearthly conflicts. Prayer, writes Bounds, is the only thing that makes effective everything else that we do in this life for the kingdom. And so Jesus gives his disciples a parable to teach them that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. So how does this parable teach us today? Well, first of all, the parable instructs us in the truth that in this life we will indeed be tempted to lose heart. The experience of prayer, Jesus says, will be such that we will be tempted time and again to throw up our hands and to give up the whole affair. And so from the outset, Jesus discounts for us any vision or thought of prayer that would make it seem like something that has little demand from us in this life. Jesus casts out the window any vision of prayer that doesn't involve a significant cross. Prayer is highly demanding. In fact, at a couple of points, Paul pulls in the Greek word for labor, for work, in order to coin an understanding or a description of prayer. And then to the Romans in Romans 15, what does he say to them? He invites the believers in Rome to what? To strive, to strive together in prayer for his sake. Because Paul knew that real prayer is real work. And the type of work is made apparent by the parable. There are two reasons here uh, that Jesus sets before us with respect to the, the manner in which this prayer is a work. The first of these is that the petitions that we make in this life are made in the context of an adversary. As the parable goes, it's not just that this woman has a material need. It's not just that her pipes are broken. It's not just that she's got some uh, need for food or some situation with her neighbor. There's something much more uh, ominous going on here. This woman, we read, is being afflicted by an enemy. And Jesus purposefully weaves the character of an adversary or an enemy into his illustration of what prayer is all about. And prayer becomes work, and prayer becomes difficult. Prayer becomes hard and discouraging precisely because the chief battle of our prayers is a fight against an adversary. The apostles knew very well why we need to pray. The apostles knew very well why we need to get up in the morning to prayer, why we need to cap our night with prayer, why we need to pray throughout the, the day. They knew very well, 1 John 5:19. brothers and sisters, Paul says, or John says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Isn't it amazing how one little verse of Scripture just smashes all of our enlightenment optimism in this world? The whole world. There's no library. There's no uh, icon of culture that does not lie in the grip 
of the enemy. The whole world is seized by the demonic, says John. And so our fight is not against petty little things. Paul knows very well as well why we pray. We have an adversary, Paul says in Ephesians 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against cosmic powers. We wrestle against spiritual forces of evil. That is, when we pray, Paul says, when you get up in the morning, you are entering into the arena with the devil. It's the great scene of heroic and of unearthly conflict. And because all of our prayers are made in the presence of such an adversary, he will do everything he possibly can to prevent you from doing the one thing that can oppose and undermine his dark purposes. Just like the old saying goes, the, the devil trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon her knees. The devil does not care whatever else you do. In fact, he's quite pleased with all kinds of activity in your life. He's quite pleased with all of your acts of service as long as you don't pray. As long as you don't connect to the heavenly judge, as long as your life doesn't connect with the only power that can oppose him. The devil loves big churches that don't pray. The devil loves big organizations that don't pray. He loves prayerless leaders. He loves prayerless husbands. He loves prayerless wives. The devil loves these things. Why? Because they have no power against him. They cannot stand against him. But when the enemy encounters someone who determines to live a life of sacrificial prayer, the devil will do anything that he can to make that person lose heart, to make that person lose the will to pray. And the devil will bring distraction into your life. The devil will bring into your life heaviness of heart. He will smother you with clouds of disinclination. He will stir up storms of impatience to make you think of paying bills or turning off the fireplace or anything while you're on your knees. He will throw his whole demonic weight into his sole purpose of stopping you from praying. Because prayer is the only thing that's powerful. There is nothing in this world so powerful as prayer. Prayer stops the mouth of the lion. And my brother and sister today, let me say to you that prayer causes things to happen that would not happen if you did not pray. Prayer causes things to happen that would not happen if we didn't pray. The scriptural principle is from the book of James. You have not. You have not. You have not because you ask not. Prayer brings into existence things that would not exist otherwise. The great uh, Anglican cleric William Temple writes, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. When I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't pray, they don't happen. In short, we haven't begun to conceive 
the power of prayer that links a finite creature to the omnipotence of God. And so it's crucial today that we're mindful of the adversary when we go to pray. That like Luther, who took his cues from Paul, that when we enter our prayer closet, whether it's the morning or whether it's the evening or it's walking down the street during the day, we realize that we're entering into a wrestling match with the ancient serpent and that we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes, but aware that in prayer he will do his utmost to cause us to lose heart, because prayer is made in the context of an adversary. Secondly, we will be tempted in prayer to lose heart, to lose our will to pray, because the answer may take longer than we anticipate, as we read in the parable today. Now, at a first glance, it seems that the text says otherwise. In verse 7 and in verse 8, Jesus insists that unlike the righteous judge, the heavenly judge will not delay long. And it says, in fact, that his answers will be speedy. But the speed that we read in verse 8 and the absence of long delay in verse 7 is framed by the habit of prayer depicted in the first part of verse 7. Look at what it says in the, uh, verse 7a. The Lord will give justice to his elect who what? Who cry unto him day and night. The Lord gives answers to those who practice constant, frequent, waiting, faithful prayer. Crying out to God day and night, not limp, half-hearted, sporadic petitions, but full-hearted, full-throated, earnest prayer to God. And so the point of the parable is not to contrast the manner of prayer between the widow and the believer, because both of them cry day and night. Both are persistent. Both make constant, nonstop, earnest appeals to God. The point of the parable today is to contrast the manner of the judges. The unrighteous judge in the parable has to be beaten down. The unrighteous judge in the parable has to be persuaded through long and tedious argument. And our Father does not. God is already graciously inclined towards us. God delights to give good gifts to his children. God is far more motivated to bless us than we are motivated to ask for his blessing. God's nature is to help. God's nature is to enrich. God's nature is to deliver us and to lavish us with good things. And so we do not need to go to God to persuade him to be generous to us. Rather, we go to our Father with the sure confidence that he is generosity itself. And in love and in covenant faithfulness, the Lord has opened to us the vault of his infinite resources, and he has said to us, ask me anything. The Lord has opened up the vault of his infinite resources, and he has said, ask me anything. And these are some of the most startling verses in all of the Bible. Truly, truly, I tell you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, I will give to you. Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. 
Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, the Lord will never give us the thing that contradicts His holiness, but all the same, the promise is surely startling to us today. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And can you believe that every day the Lord of heaven and earth comes to our bedside and He gently wakes us up and He invites us into His throne room and He says, ask me today anything in my name. Just come and ask me anything in my name today. I will give it to you. We brush Him aside and we hit our snooze button and we say, not today, Lord. Not today. The certainty of the promise of answered prayer to the believer is astonishing. And we waste it by not frequenting our Heavenly Father day and night. The Lord opens up the vaults of His infinite resources and He says, ask away. And yet, the parable tells us today that we're still expected to wait. We are still expected to cry day and night for our answers. You shall find, writes Richard Baxter, that God's usual course is not to give his children the taste of his delights till they begin to sweat in the seeking after them. In this regard, we can lose heart. In this regard, we can stop praying just short of the blessing. We can find the devil whispering to us in the midst of these prayers, God doesn't hear. God doesn't care, we say. And so the life of our prayer life can wither and die. But Jesus comes to us today, and he says to us these simple things. Your Father hears you. Your Father cares for you. Your Father will answer your prayers. So keep praying. Keep praying always, at all times, in all places. Give yourself to prayer. Make prayer the priority of your life. Make prayer the one thing that you do because he hears you and he will answer you speedily and above and beyond all that you can ask or think. If you but believe in your Father, he will stagger your wildest imaginations. So my brothers and sisters, let's today hear the word of the Lord and let's commit ourselves to praying at all times and to not losing heart. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.